Good morning, church family. If y'all would please stand for a reading of God's word. We're going to be reading from Jonah, uh, chapter, we'll start in chapter 3, verse 10. It's on page 452 um, in the Bibles in the seat pocket behind you or in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that one as a gift uh, from us to you. Okay, so Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10, page 452. Now God, when he saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not... Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well? To be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came upon the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came up into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than a 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the reading of God's word. Thank you, Landy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it says to us. And Lord, we pray that we would be attentive and we'd be alert to hear everything that it says to us today. Lord, I pray that that none of us would leave here without a, a better picture of your grace, a better understanding of your dealings with us as fallen humans, Lord. God, we pray that you would light up the darkest places in us. Show us what's, what's there, Lord God, and so that we could have the joy, the grace to repent and to, and to order our lives rightly before you. So, Father, we ask all of this in your name. We ask you to just help me, to enable me to preach your word uh, clearly, thoroughly, accurately, Lord. 
um, so that I might bring honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So here we are uh, at the climax of Jonah's story. Um, let, let's just kind of review real quick. Most of you are fairly familiar, but remember after fleeing from the Lord's presence and after being pursued by God by a deadly storm at sea, after being tossed overboard into that raging sea and swallowed by an enormous fish, which God also provided for that purpose, and, and after miraculously surviving in said fish for three days and three nights, the prophet Jonah finally complies with God's original order and completes his long journey to Nineveh. And when he's there, as Tom shared with us so clearly yesterday, um, he, or last week rather, he, he preaches a, a bare bones minimalist message. There's not much to his message. It's a, it's a message of doom and destruction to these wicked pagans that live in Nineveh. And this is the message. Some of you might like me to preach a message this morning because it's very short. But if you're paying attention, it's not a very good message. Because he says this. He says, you've got 40 days and then it's lights out for you. It's curtains in 40 days. End of message. Take an offering and go home. That's kind of how Jonah preached to them. There's no evidence from the text at all that Jonah in his short message, his one sentence message, ever mentions God. He does not mention at all the concept or the availability of mercy, of grace, of forgiveness. That's not ever mentioned. And yet the people of Nineveh were inexplicably moved to repentance by the news of an impending catastrophe. Something in them was triggered to go, maybe there's something we ought to be doing in response to this word. And so they humbled themselves before God to the uttermost. And I mean from the least of them to the greatest of them. The common people and the king alike wore sackcloth. The, the wearing of sackcloth in, in the, these days in the Old Testament history, it was a, it was a symbol. It was, it, it was, you put on these little burlap costumes and it was a symbol of great humiliation, great mourning, great grief. And they sat among the ashes. And, and they even declared a, a, a nationwide or citywide fast for both them and their livestock. They weren't going to eat or drink. Their, their livestock wasn't going to eat or drink. Um, and and they, they did this in total contrition before God for their guilt. And they were commanded by the royal decree of the king to abandon violence, abandon evil. And they hoped, against hope, that somehow their penitence would turn the anger of God away from them so that their lives would be spared. They'd heard the word that Jonah preached. They believed it. They responded. And they hoped that somehow that would, for lack of a better term, change God's mind. This is what they said in Jonah 3, 9, the verse right before where we started today. The people of Nineveh say, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. How many of you would agree with me that not perishing is a pretty good goal for your prayers. It's a good goal. And that was what they were after. And sure enough, sure enough, that's exactly what happened. Disaster 
was averted by God. Lives were spared by God. A city was introduced to the all-powerful yet merciful God of Israel. A pagan, lost, wicked city learned about the one true God. Now, how would you imagine that Jonah would react to this? You know, as a preacher uh, for several years, few decades now, I have had fantasies of the ultimate message. The ultimate message where every word hits on all cylinders and at the end of it, thousands of people stand to their feet and say, what must I do to be saved? To date, that has not happened. To date, I have not preached the perfect message. It has not been without flaw. And that's why I pray that every Sunday that God would help me because I'm so frail. But but somehow with this message, Jonah preaches this message and everybody responds. How should Jonah respond to this? He's God's man. He has God's call on his life. He's equipped with God's word. Surely he will rejoice at the display of grace on Nineveh's behalf. Not so fast. That is not what happened. Remember the words, the first verse of Jonah chapter 4? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Jonah is not happy. Jonah's actually upset that his preaching was effective. He's angry. He's angry with God for turning away from the wrath he'd promised to the Ninevites. Jonah, now think about what that implies. Think about it. Jonah would have preferred the destruction of the Ninevites to their repentance. He was after them getting toasted up. That's what he wanted. But they repented and wrecked his plans. A picture is coming into view after four chapters of Jonah as a really cold and heartless man towards those who seem to him to be undeserving of God's mercy. We've seen this. I said this a couple weeks ago, the last time I shared with you before Tom's message. Jonah is not a role model. Do not read a children's Bible to your kids and say, be like Jonah. Jonah is the model of nothing Remember those sailors on the boat? First chapter? They were crying out to whatever God. They, they'd never been introduced to the true God. They were crying out to whatever God might hear and save them from destruction. But good old compassionate Jonah, who knows the one true God, knows how to speak to him in a way that he'll respond. Where is he? He is sawing logs down in the bottom of the boat. He is fast asleep without a care in the world. Apathetic and indifferent. And now here he is in Nineveh, finally, somehow, reluctantly, through force, obeys God to go where he was commanded to go. And a massive revival has taken place. The culture is absolutely transformed from the ground up. The the culture is completely transformed in response to his pathetic preaching. And he throws a temper tantrum. Let's read the next part of it. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Oh, Lord! Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? You made me come all this way for this? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, 
After three chapters, we're beginning this fourth chapter. And now with that verse, this whole story starts to make a lot of sense. A lot of the unanswered questions of this story begin to get answered with this statement of Jonah. See, Jonah admits that his rotten attitude is not new. But that the reason for his original defiance of God's command was this. He originally didn't want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid, he was terrified that God might just be true to his merciful nature. I don't want to go and tell those sinners that you might, that you're, you're, you're exist. What if they call out to you and, and you don't destroy them? Jonah, now this might relate to somebody here. I'm rolling the dice, I admit it, but Jonah had an expectation. Has anybody in the room, do you have courage enough to raise your hand and admit that you have, at least once in your life, been the victim of your own expectations? Anybody? Jonah had an expectation. And this is the expectation. Sinners should get what they deserve. There's a line that's not appropriate for me to say from the pulpit about karma. And yet people love to say it. Christian people, I hear them all the time talking about karma. Listen, if you, if people tend to be real excited about karma in relation to other people's sins, but if they're smart, they're not too, too big on it in relation to their own sins. <laughs> Karma's terrible. But this is exactly what Jonah is crying out to. Before the concept of karma was even formulated, Jonah is crying out for karma. Let them get what they deserve, God. He had preached wrath, and that's exactly, in his mind, what God should have delivered. He wanted God to be consistent, not with his own self-revelation, but he wanted God to be consistent with Jonah's own view of who God should be. None of us have ever done that right. Right? Okay, good. I knew I was in the right church. He wanted God to, to fall in line with his view of how the world should work. But can I tell you a secret? It's going to save your life if you listen. God absolutely will not be boiled down to a formula of your expectation. He won't do it. Paul put it like this in Romans chapter 9. He said, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. There's nobody here, and there's nobody out there that has received or that ever will receive mercy and compassion from the Lord God who deserves it. Nobody. So don't be appealing to karma or you're a dead man or woman. Don't do it. Think about the hypocrisy of Jonah in this moment. When Jonah, think about this. He's so mad because God showed undeserving people mercy and compassion. Now, does anybody here recall the recent events of Jonah's life? Jonah was in the fish. And he was praising God for what? For his mercy. 
He was praising God for his merciful salvation. But now that that mercy is shown to the Ninevites, his sworn enemies, he is seriously ticked off. And looking into the face of God and crying foul. At the beginning, the very beginning, these words that Jonah quotes back to God, so important if you're a Jewish person. So Well, so important if you're a Christian person as well. At the very beginning of Israel's national identity, they've come out of Egypt, they're gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God reveals his, to Moses his nature. He describes to Moses what he is like with these words out of Exodus chapter 34. He says, the Lord, this is God speaking of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And this statement in one form or another is repeated nine times in the Old Testament. God wants us to know something about his nature. That he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. But notice, I want you to notice this is real important. In the words we read from Jonah earlier, That Jonah does not proclaim these attributes back to God in worship. He doesn't lift his hand and bend his knee and say, Thank you, God, that you're merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. He doesn't do that. He repeats them back to God as an accusation. Not worship. He's not saying, Thank you, God, because this is who you are. He's saying, How dare you, God? For being like this to those people. He has a problem. His essential problem is with the very character of God. See, Jonah sees compassion on the Ninevites, God's compassion on the Ninevites, as a weakness. Even though he has recently benefited from similar mercy. He should have died in that ocean. He deserved to die in that ocean. And yet God, through the most absurd means, rescues his life. And he has four issues with God, all based on what God has identified himself as. First, he has a problem with God being gracious or showing grace. He's okay with receiving grace for himself when he needs it, but he doesn't want God showing grace to those he has deemed do not deserve it specifically non-Israelite pagan enemies of the state. And I ask you, y'all mind if I get a little political just for a second? What does this say to those of us who may identify as politically conservative and yet we identify with Christians? And what does this say about our attitudes towards immigrants? towards Muslims, toward the incarcerated, towards the residents of the inner cities. See, we may be okay with these people and these groups once they convert, once they're on our team. But right now, where they are, perishing in sin, how much grace do we display to them before they convert? How much are we showing? How much love? How much mercy? How much grace are we showing? Or what about people who... How many of you admit you're a sinner? Raise your hand. Okay, should have been all of you, but I'll take what I can get. 
how do we feel about those, since we all admitted, most of us admitted that we're sinners, how do we feel about those who also sin, but sin in manners differently than we do? I'm talking about homosexuals, I'm talking about abortionists, I'm talking about greedy industrialists and lying politicians. Do we plead with God to show them mercy or do we, like Jonah, do we celebrate their destruction when it comes? Next, not only does Jonah have a problem with God's graciousness, he has a problem with a God who is merciful. Now, I'm, I'm making mercy distinct from grace here because what I'm talking about and, and the way the Hebrew kind of explains this, uh, this concept of God's mercy, it, it speaks not only of God's unmerited favor, which is what grace is, it's what he gives us that we don't deserve, but it also points to, mercy points to his tender and compassionate nature. Mercy expresses how God hovers over his fallen, lost, sinful creation. Like a mother leans into a crib to comfort her crying infant child. We see this in Jesus' life as when he walked the earth. Matthew chapter 9 says that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He didn't say, look at those losers. They can't even get the, the law right. They, they, you know, they don't know who I am. I, you know, they're all going to go to hell. You know, and they deserve to go to hell. The Bible says he had compassion on them. And why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That state of, of being lost and directionless moved the heart of God himself to have compassion on them. That's who God is. If you're a believer today, let me again remind you, you're only a believer today because Christ saw you. You did not see Christ. Christ saw you when you were utterly helpless. When you were utterly in sin and he had compassion on you and he called you to himself. But that's not all. Thirdly, Jonah was not excited that God was a God that was slow to anger. All right, God, you know what these pagans are doing with all their idol worship and, and uh, you know attacks on God's people. They deserve some judgment here. Let's get this show on the road. He wanted swift and absolute judgment meted out on those uncircumcised Assyrians. Why would God give these rascals chance after chance to humble themselves before him? Because he's slow to anger. Oh my gosh. I would have been dead a thousand times over if God were not slow to anger. Again, can you see the irony in this statement? If anyone should celebrate the fact that the mercy of the Lord endures forever and that God is slow to anger, it's Jonah! Jonah dug his heels in and God chased him over and over and over again, preserved his life to give him the chance to repent. When you find yourself frustrated by the Lord's patience towards others, you should remember that without his mercy, without his grace, every single moment you would not last 
a minute. He wouldn't survive. The Bible even says that. Did you know that? Lamentations chapter 3 says this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. That's what, that, that is saying this. That is saying that every one of us is always on the brink of destruction. And justly so. That God has us on the brink of destruction and we deserve everything that can be poured out on us. And the only thing saving your neck is the unfailing love and compassion of God. That's the thing. You are alive today because of the mercy of God. And more importantly, you are saved today because of the compassion and the mercy of God that does not fail. He doesn't only save us, folks. He keeps us because his compassions never fail. Lastly, Jonah takes offense at the covenant-keeping love of God. That he shows to people in spite of their sin. The Hebrew word for this is a great word. It's chesed. You got to kind of get it out of your throat there like most Hebrew words. Chesed. And the, the ESV translates the word chesed as steadfast love. But I like what Bible commentator James Bruckner says. He suggests an, a better alternative to steadfast love is unrelenting love. To describe the love of God. Chesed is a love that never quits. It never gets up. It persists. It's resilient. It keeps coming at you. And Jonah has a problem with that. See, he's fine with God directing his chesed to the, the Jews, the people of the covenant. But for non-Jews? Well, that's unacceptable. That can't be expected to be the norm for God to love people who aren't his covenant people. See, this is nothing short of Jonah telling God he has no right to be God. And in that, we can look at him and confidently say, what a fool. Think about Jonah's, that we have one little snapshot of of a few weeks, months maybe, of Jonah's life in these four chapters. And think about what he has seen. He has seen God exercise absolute total control over the climate. He's seen him absolutely control the sea. He's seen him absolutely exercise control over aquatic creatures that may not have even existed until he needed one. He's seen all of this happen to his benefit, his salvation, his deliverance. But now he is literally cursing God for exercising authority over the judgment of human life. That's pretty bold, I would say. Once again, in response to all this, for now the second time in the story, we see Jonah sink into total despondency and despair. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it's better for me to live, for for me to die rather than to live. And the Lord says, do you do well to be angry? This is the second time Jonah chooses death while fighting God's purposes rather than committing to live for his will. And God patiently reasons with him and asks him to examine the basis of, for his anger. 
And this is a great question for all of us gathered here today, all of us watching on Facebook, to examine our life right now, right now. You can play games with me. You can play games with your spouse. You can play games with your kids, your coworkers. You cannot play games with God. He knows. So now is a great time to just be honest. Are you disappointed right now? Has God in your mind let you down somehow? Are you angry that God hasn't moved as quickly or in the manner that you expected? Perhaps there's someone that has horribly wronged you and has yet to apologize. Or maybe they seem to be receiving bucket loads of mercy and grace they do not deserve. While you are in circumstances that aren't changing, even though you feel like you're doing everything right. God looks right into your soul and he says, do you do well to be angry? And my question to you, reflecting on what Jonah has done up to this point in the story, is can you trust God to be God? Can you look at all the chaos of your life, all the unanswered questions of your life, relinquish control and say, you're in charge, I'm not. And I know that ultimately your purposes for me are completely good. The people who listened to Jesus preach said this. They said, he has done all things well. That would be a great testimony for the church, don't you think? Just to look back into the face of God and say, you've done everything well. God has not and will not ever fail you or forsake you. Let's proceed. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. By the way, the actual... uh, Hebrew there actually says to save him from his evil. I thought that was kind of neat, but to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah goes out of the city, sets up a little shelter to watch. What is he watching for? He is hoping that his, his complaint has had some weight with God, that God has listened to his complaint, and that any minute now he is going to fry those nasty Ninevites into crispy little critters. That is what he is hoping for. And he's got himself a front row seat, popcorn in hand, to watch them burn. And so God, infinitely wise, decides to do a little object lesson with Jonah. Again. (laughs) The God who hurled a storm at him, the God who uh, uh, appointed a fish to swallow him, now sends a vine to shade him. The implications of the text are that in one, in one day, in, in maybe moments, this vine springs up, covers his head, provides shade in the blistering Middle Eastern heat, and, 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 uh, and he's grateful. It's a miraculous event. It springs up in one day, and it's, it's big enough to act as a natural umbrella so that Jonah could watch the big show in air-conditioned comfort. And Jonah is tremendously happy to have the accommodation. What's happening here? Something appeared out of nowhere. The vine. The vine just shows up out of nowhere. And it's bringing comfort to Jonah. And he is rejoicing. Now, think about what just happened. 
And isn't that the definition, the biblical textbook definition of grace? Think about it. God has provided something based on his goodness and loving care, whether Jonah deserved it or not. And all this, this point becomes clear about what happens next. Next verse says, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed, there's that word again, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked the Lord, here we go again, that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. Now think about this. God had mercifully provided the unmerited grace of a shady plant. Now he appoints a worm to destroy it. And can I just say something there? You might understand God as the master of the winds and the waves, the one who calls out the starry host by name. But I'm telling you that God's sovereignty extends so far that he's the king of every worm on the planet. He is the king of worms. And he appoints them according to his good pleasure to do his will. So Jonah, God appoints this worm. We're going to teach Jonah a lesson. And the shade is removed. And, and, and when the shade is removed, God once again sends a wind like he did in the chapter one, but it's not a hurricane this time. Now it's a scorching wind out of the east and it's to bring Jonah to the point of a sunstroke. Oh, the love of God. <laughs> For the third time, three times in this story, four chapters, three times in the story, we hear this despondent, selfish prophet prophet, call out for the sweet release that only death can bring him. I have had enough, God! Just kill me right here and now! He's willing to see an entire city perish without a thought as they starve to death for just a single trace of grace and mercy. And now... God kills a plant and he sees how very frail he is himself. When God removes the smallest, tiniest measure of grace from him. Y'all see in the picture here? I don't want you to raise your hands, but this doesn't relate to anybody in the room, does it? That we can kind of watch other people starving for lack of grace and have a total hissy fit. When the tiniest little smidge of grace is removed from our life. I'll let that be between you and God. But let me just say it was a really hard message to write. Because there may have, I'm not confirming or denying anything, there may have been one or two stories that came up in my mind about my own life when I was writing this. Perhaps you remember the words that Jonah prayed in the, we, uh, in the belly of the fish. We talked about these at length a couple weeks ago. Jonah said in Jonah 2.9, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. The worthless idol, in this case, was Jonah's own selfishness, his apathy, his judgmentalism, his lack of compassion. And now he's learning what it looks like to be deprived of the grace he so desperately needs. He is 
clung to his idols, and forfeited the grace that could have been his. And now, needless to say, God has his attention. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. God asked Jonah to assess his anger for the second time in this passage. This time, Jonah blatantly justifies himself. And he tells God that he was wronged. Again, no hands. Anybody ever tell God you've been wronged? He tells God he was wronged and that God has been very unfair with him and he, and, and he would like to take it up with God's supervisor. That's a joke. God has no supervisor. So he, he's, he's laid this accusation at the, at the feet of God and he would have done well to understand the words of Jesus who said, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. See, God is about to deliver the punchline to his object lesson. And in so doing, he will shed holy light on Jonah's pity party and his temper tantrum. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. God points out that Jonah had nothing to do with the plant's existence. It was grace. He had nothing to do with it. He didn't plant it. He didn't cultivate it. He didn't fertilize it. It lasted one day. In the big picture, that little plant was a very, very meaningless thing. And no one but Jonah would miss it being there. But for the city of Nineveh, it was an entirely different story. God said, and should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their left hand from their right and so also much cattle. See, Jonah had so much grief. He was literally in mourning for the death of a plant, grieving so much that he himself was ready to die. But he had made himself comfortable. He'd settled into his beanbag chair there to to watch the wrath of God poured out on men and women, children, all of them created in the image of God. And yet, who is he mourning? The 120,000 people or the plant? This was not a, a, a small thing. This was a huge population. You might think, well, you know, Lubbock's twice as big as that. It's, it, it's not a very large population. You don't understand. In the ancient world, it was largely a, an agrarian culture. Cities did not gather in communities of that size. Generally, they were, they existed in communities of a few dozen to a few hundred, and that was about it. Larger cities might have two or three thousand. This is 120,000 people. This may have been one of the largest metropolises on the face of the planet at the time. This was an infinitely larger population than most of the cities in the world. And, and while Jonah was sitting there, he was ignoring their worth and he failed to reflect the heart of God and he was willing to watch them perish. And what I want to ask you, this has to get personal. We can't leave it dusty in the Old Testament. How often do you and I, be honest, interact with friends, with family, with strangers who are perishing while we sit comfortably in the shade of grace? Just watching. 
knowing what it would take to rescue them. And we watch, we know what Christ has done to redeem both them and us. And yet we stretch and we yawn in our faith, letting them die while we withhold the truth that can save them from eternal destruction. And let me get real serious for a minute. We will surely answer for this. Surely we will give an account before the Lord for all the times that we've done this. But, but there was also, it wasn't just the size of the population, there was also their ignorance. God said to them, they don't know their right hand from their left. What, the, what he's saying there is that no one in that huge city had the capacity on their own to know how to call on God, to know how to receive grace. They needed someone to help. Are there people like that where you work? Are there people like that where you go to school that don't know their right hand from their left? They would not know the first thing about how to reach out to Jesus. They don't have the basic facts to know what Christ can do in them. Paul said in Romans, he said, How will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And it's still true today. There are many, and that's not talking about what I do. I'm grateful for when people hear and they respond in this Sunday morning setting, but he's talking about the proclamation out there. That's where we preach and people hear and they respond and they give their, their hearts and their lives to him, make, them Lord of, make him Lord of their life. Ezekiel gives a very strong warning on this front. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, If I say to the wicked, God speaking, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to him to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. Those kind of words should kind of shake us, haunt us a little. Would you agree? God's serious about this. Lastly, oddly, it it seems kind of out of place, but as a a kind of a wake-up call to Jonah, God mentions their cattle. There's 120,000 people in the city and also a lot of cattle. Who cares about the cows, right? I mean, you know, who cares? And most commentators believe the, the God is, is, it's actually kind of a little bit of a jab at Jonah. Because if this prophet cared more about a vine than a soul, it may be if he knew that cattle were at stake, it might get his attention. Surely if he cares more about a vine than a soul, then he probably would care more about a cow than a soul. Because cows, that's important, that represents wealth. Maybe if God fries up all those people, I could have the cows. And when I was reading this, I asked myself, and I want you to ask yourself, do I care more about stuff? Not just material stuff, but emotional stuff, relational stuff, and yes, material stuff. Do I care more about stuff, these things that the world spends millions in advertising to tell me that are important, more than I care about the perishing souls all around me at every moment. You might have a hard time putting that into context, so let me help you. Would it bother you more today if you 
driving home and your car is completely totaled? It, would it bother you more today than that somebody that you have not yet met on the other side of Lubbock dies and slips into eternity without God? Which would bother us more? I'm not trying to be a downer or a guilt trip. These are serious questions. Because God is has entrusted us with the message that, that frees men and women, that, that, that sets them free, that, that gives them real life, that gives them abundant life. And most of us cannot find any motivation to open our mouths and proclaim the goodness of the Lord. But man, shoot, if most of us, if we get a little scratch on our car from a shopping cart, we freak out. Do we care more about the cows than the souls? So I want to just say this to you in closing. I hope that there were some things that got tossed out, some seed that got tossed out on your hearts this morning, the fertile ground of your hearts that is taking root. And that the Lord's speaking to you, not about generalities, but about specific people that you need to talk to. That he's talking to you about specific attitudes that need to die in you of ungraciousness while you receive all kinds of grace. I pray that he's really dealing with you right now. I pray there's not a person in this room, myself included, who is not carrying some weight of conviction right now. Because this message of Jonah 4 is a message to all of us. I've said it three times now. Jonah is a mirror. We cannot stand back, armchair quarterbacking Jonah and saying, man, he should have done this, he should have done that. No, God put Jonah in the Bible so we'd say, this is how we should not live and how we should live. He's a mirror. So let me just say to you, may we treasure what God treasures May we unhesitatingly go where he sends us. And may we, once there, speak exactly what he commands us. And may we celebrate mercy whenever it's shown to anybody, especially to those, however, who are least deserving. And may we, in the least deserving, see a reflection of ourselves who absolutely were not deserving of the grace we've received. Can I get an amen on that? And may we realize how often we benefit from God's mercies towards us and pray for others to experience that mercy. The key phrase in our weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper is when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And after a message like I've tried to share with you this morning, what I want you to do is to slow down a little bit. Sometimes you may approach the table as kind of a, uh, uh, a routine, you know, just something we do before we dismiss. But I want you to slow down and I want you to take, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a, a minute or so. This may seem interminably long to those of you who aren't used to being still and quiet. But I want you to close your eyes, to bow your head, and I want you to remember. Say, so do this in remembrance for me. What do I want you to remember? I want you to remember how grace has come into your life. Ultimately, I want you to remember how Jesus saved you from the depth of sins if you are, in fact, a believer. 
I want you to, to remember how that happened. The, the circumstances that brought that about. The person that said whatever they said that, that caused you to awaken to your need for Christ. I want you to remember that. But then, more than that, some of you that have been saved for years, for decades even, I want you to slow down and I want you to consider how grace is being revealed to you all the time. Think about times that God has spared you, um, you know, emotionally, physically, uh, mentally, how God has just poured out his grace to, on you. How that, as, as Katie read at the very beginning of the service, when you have walked through the valley of the shadow of death, you had no fear of evil because God was with you. And every one of us, especially those of us who call ourselves believers, should not have any difficulty with a task like that. And then lastly, as those things, your, your initial introduction to Christ and all the times that God has revealed grace to you and spared you and shown incredible kindness, compassion, steadfast love, unrelenting love to you, I want you to just stop before we take these elements together and I want you to give thanks. Just give thanks for what he's done. Everybody bow your heads, close your eyes. And we're just going to take, take a little time here and do this. feel like the Lord is leading me to say that some of you need to um, repent for a real bad habit of not acknowledging grace in your life. And others of you need to repent for not celebrating grace when it was revealed to your enemies, to those who you didn't personally care for or like. Just add that to your list of the things you're doing before the Lord right now. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we remember, God, as we held within our fingers this symbol of your sacrifice for us, the way that you died, that you were, you were crushed, Lord, we remember that that was so that we could receive grace, so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. And so, God, our hearts are filled with gratitude, with thankfulness, because of grace this morning as we hold an element that represents your broken body. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your brokenness. Thank you, Lord, that that you have, God, opened up a, a wellspring of grace to us that covers us every day. Every day when we wake from sleeping, Lord God, every day that we live healthy, every day that we have what we need, Lord God, every every day that your presence is so near to us and your wisdom is made available to us, Lord, that is grace. And we thank you for the way that you have shaded us with your grace, Lord God. And saved us from our evil, saved us from our discomfort, Lord God. So, Lord, we ask you not to, not to uh, allow us to cling to worthless idols so that our grace is forfeited, Lord God. We need, we desire, we hunger for your grace, Lord God. And so let it abound to us more and more. Let's take the bread together.
In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you not only for your broken body, but your spilled blood, Lord. We thank you. God, the song that we have sung so often says, there's a, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. So God, thank you for washing us clean of our stain, Lord God. God, we were no better than those pagan Ninevites, Lord God. And we turned to you saying, perhaps God will have mercy. Perhaps he will relent from his anger. And only through this blood, only through the cleansing sacrifice of your son, Lord God, were we spared from destruction. And God, the Bible says that if we walk in the light, as you are in the light, we have fellowship one with another, us with you, and that your blood cleanses us from all our sin. God, I thank you that your blood didn't cleanse my sins just in 1987, but it cleanses it this morning, Lord God. And I thank you for the perpetual cleansing of your blood as I cling to you in faith and trust. So we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the cup together. May we always remember grace. I wanted to share something with you just real quick before I give you the benediction. Um, the, uh, and we're going to have some more for, uh, for you on this because we want you guys to get to share in the celebration. But um, last night the youth had a, a pool party. And uh, one of the things that, that happened, or probably the, the best thing about it, as much as I enjoyed the whole party, is that uh, Cy Weller, um, who has, uh, you know, about a year ago put his trust in the Lord, um, was baptized. And so I wanted you guys to get to know that, celebrate that. And so way to go, Cy. We're really proud of you. And and, um, and so you guys give Cy a hug and let him know how, how happy you are for him. And uh, meant to say that right at the beginning. And sometimes my brain just says, must preach like some kind of robot. So anyway, I apologize for that. If you would place your hands in a, in a receiving position, I just want to read this benediction over you. I think it really perfectly sums up what we read today, and this is what the, what the scriptures would say to you. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. In the name of the Father. In the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, I bless you. In Jesus' name, you're dismissed.